Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. Alright, in this episode, we're going to be talking about a movie, and it's going to be Star Trek Into Darkness. Uh, typically, I don't go to too many movies in the theaters, but some of my uh, time constraints and schedule stuff have changed recently, so I've actually gotten to see it. With me was uh, Kay Kellum, who some of you may know as, as my sister. She, too, is a bit of a Star Trek fan, yes? Uh, definitely. We got to tour the sets of Star Trek The Next Generation when we were both in college, which is definitely a part of our fandom of Star Trek. And John may recall that we walked on Romulus when we were in college. This was the uh, two-parter reunification or reunification, I forget what it was, of Next Generation, that had uh, Leonard Nimoy guest starring. So we didn't get to see all of the set. Certain parts of it were closed. We did bump into, was it uh, Jonathan Frakes who played Riker? Jonathan Frakes was walking around, though he was worried about learning his lines and deferred from talking with the guests that day as in a I want to run off. We got to talk with Michael Westmore, the head makeup artist, yeah. who had some uh, choice words for a young man <laughs> who had noticed the changes in the Klingon makeup over the seasons. Well, because this was, um, they were filming, obviously, I think the second or third season at that point, third, I guess. And as people might recall, second season? No, uh, what occurred to me was we can figure out the exact date because they announced it was the day after Gene Roddenberry had had his, I guess it was a stroke, possibly a heart attack, but he had just had the big health incident. And so they had announced there was a very somber tone on set and asked that the guests be respectful of the fact that the cast and crew was very concerned about how the father of Star Trek was doing. Well, I think they were also a bit, you know, of, hey, we've got Nimoy from the original show here. And it was still early in their run and stuff. And, you know, the the comment about uh, the makeup and stuff is, if you recall, the look of Worf changed a lot from first season to second season. And my question was basically, did you think anyone was going to notice or not? Was that intentional or kind of what's going on? And, and it was a combination of making it easier on Michael Dorn, the actor, making it faster and stuff to do. Because Worf was not expected to be a regular character, but just kind of a, yeah, we have a Klingon. And trying to make it look better for the camera. And his pointing out that film for movies versus how they were filming for television, the proportions came out differently and the shadows and things. So they just fine-tuned until they found the just-right look on the forehead ridges. Yeah. And the appreciation for the fans noticing was not necessarily there in that precise moment. (laughs) Well, and again, it was funny because with Next Gen, particularly that first half of the first season, they were shooting it more like it was uh, on film, like a movie, versus the lighting you would do for television. And if you look back at it, you can see how the, the mood lighting on the Enterprise was very different. But of course, that's that's TV show. Let's, yes, yes. Let's let's talk about a bit about Star Trek Into Darkness. I mean, uh, we've both watched Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, gone back and watched the whole original run. I've seen all the movies. I'm pretty sure you've seen all the movies, too. Well, and that's one of the things that struck me during the movie today is there were just so many nice nods to the fans who have been watching all of these literally decades and lines that were oh wait I know that line or looks between actors of yeah you think you've seen the scene before before we go any further I do want to point out this is going to be a bit spoiler filled I mean we're going to talk about the movie stem to stern and if you haven't seen it go see it then listen to this and that's part of why I tend not to to go see movies opening day And certainly I don't want to be reviewing something. I mean, with the comic stuff, we review it about a week and a half after the stuff comes out. So people have a chance to experience the story first and then hear what we have to say. There are other places that will go and tell you everything the minute it comes out. If you want it spoiled, that's great. You've had the chance to go see it. If not, see it, then keep listening. But 
the reason I wanted to mention that is there were a lot of aspects of this where I was very tempted during it, and had we been watching it on DVD here at the house, I would have said, you know, hey, did you catch that? Yes, definitely. Character names, there were a couple of things where it took about maybe halfway through the movie, I didn't have a watch, so I don't know how far through, where I realized, this is Star Trek Two, And by which I mean, it is Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan, and there were certain key things. Oh wait, there's Carol Marcus. Eventually we get Khan himself. There were aspects where they did some reversals of what they had done in the first film. I was expecting, frankly, the torpedoes to be the Genesis device. There were just these precise moments, these precise lines of dialogue, and nothing was lost on you, or you didn't come out of the movie saying something fell flat, or what the heck were they doing, if you hadn't seen the previous movies, the previous TV shows, whatever... But if you had seen Wrath of Khan, there was this extra layer for you. Yeah, it stood on its own, but it was also enough of a mirror image or match set that you get another layer of the story, like you said, which I I really enjoyed. But because it was, again, once once that light bulb went on for me, I'm thinking, oh, that's Carol Marcus. Okay, so are they going to do the love relationship with Kirk there since they had a kid? Um, and th- these events are happening sooner and differently than in the old universe. You know, how Khan gets to where he is, what Khan does, etc. Um, Khan was still very much the Khan of old, but a different take on him. And, and understandably so, that it was it was fun to see where they went left, where previously things had gone right, and where a few, they just kind of went differently. Mm-hmm. The only part that I felt was really a little forced, but kind of fun and and had my mind racing in one direction was when McCoy was injecting the blood of of Khan into the Tribble. And I'm thinking, Tribbles replicate like mad. You're looking for a weapon, essentially. Khan's blood replicates like mad. That's a biological warfare waiting to happen. I actually was wondering if they were going to take a Tribble over to the other ship and if that was the weapon of choice. And I was trying to figure out how is a Tribble weapon, if you will, going to save the day. Well, that's essentially what they used against the Klingons in the original series at one point. Yes. And what I liked is there were aspects for me while watching the film where I was trying to second-guess, trying to, to stay a little ahead of them. In a few cases, I think I got there before they did. In a few cases, I went in other directions and then saw where they were going. And I was usually pleased with where they went, you mm-hmm. know, because there was a, a few places where it's like, wait, 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 do we really see what's going to happen with this character, you know, later and a few places like that. All in all, it was fun. Now, the other thing we should mention is we saw it at uh, the Bob Bullock uh, State History Museum here in Austin, Texas, which has an IMAX screen. So we saw it in full IMAX, full 3D, and there were a few places where the 3D, I mean, 3D is a gimmick, no no two ways about it. And I, you tilt your head just wrong and it goes out. I went in flat out saying, I don't need or crave 3D, but there are some movies where those extra inches on the screen are fun to have. Well, and three years ago, we went and saw the earlier Star yeah. Trek on the IMAX for the extra inches and just some of those space battle scenes are fun to have. The size, the scale. This is also where we saw Avatar. Yes. Now, Avatar needed the size, it needed the 3D, it was an incredibly immersive experience. Yes. And it's funny because with this and to a slight degree with the previous Trek film, which was in IMAX but not 3D, I often feel at an IMAX film like I'm too close to the screen. You know, when they do the captions of, oh, we're in London or we're in, you know, Mm -hmm. wherever, and I've got to crane my head to go to the upper left or the bottom right or wherever to follow stuff. Maybe I'm just that lazy of a viewer, but a little extra work to do it. Well, the difference for me between this movie and Avatar because they had the different types of 3D, so the different glasses, was Avatar had the wraparound glasses, and this one didn't. So I could see the edges of my glasses throughout the movie, and I was getting slight bits of blurring at the bottom corners, and the bottom corners is where the subtitles were when the characters spoke in Klingon. 
The other difference is Avatar was made for 3D. That was an integral part of how they created the film. This was something that was converted to 3D. And I know, you know, a lot of people are going to see it without either IMAX, obviously, or the 3D. And I felt the 3D in places added to the film. Mm -hmm. There was only one or two where it's like, they had an opening kind of a gambit, uh, which kind of reminds me of the the old MacGyver TV series. Yes. Or James Bond stuff, where you've got this little mini-adventure, then the opening credits, then we get to the full thing. And that opening scene was just incredibly fun, and I thought in a few places where the spears were getting thrown... There were one or two of those where it had a much more visceral feel to it and impact because of the 3D. The 3D at that point literally reminded me of some of the old original 3D experiences at Disney. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those where there are a few other places the 3D was there to be there. One of the uses of 3D that I... I wondered about throughout the early phases of the movie, but it paid off later on was, again, if we'd been at home watching it on DVD, I would have commented, what is up with all the debris in this movie? Yeah, yeah. There were quite a few places where they had just stuff. And, I mean, there was debris floating. There was ash floating. There were things floating constantly. But... Way late in the movie, there's a payoff, and they're dodging debris, and the debris is integral. Mm-hmm. And because the 3D had been, I don't want to say highlighting the debris, but making you aware of it yeah. throughout, it wasn't like debris suddenly appears out of nowhere and becomes a part of the movie. It o- it's always kind of annoying when you've got this pristine world but when they need debris, it's there. Or you've got this empty world, but when they need crowds, they're there. Yes. And, yeah, no, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about there. Now, one of the things that, frankly, drove me nuts with the first film and was not as big of a problem but was in a key scene was the damn lighting on the bridge. The lens flares. When Carol was basically doing the dad-don't-kill-me scene and the light behind her almost blacks out i mean over what you can't see her neck you're getting blinded by the light directly behind her i know that was intentional but it's it was so distracting so annoying she got decapitated by light when i think they were going for an angel halo type effect yeah it was distracting it i don't say it killed the mood because it didn't but it it was it was far more noticeable than it should have been good lighting is invisible lighting yes um Overall, I like how they have revitalized Star Trek. I love what they're doing with it. I didn't expect to love it. I'm not an original Trek person. I didn't really like original Kirk or original Mm -hmm. Spock, especially before Next Gen. I came back to the original generation and we rewatched it after the reboot three years ago. And I appreciated it more watching it on DVD after this movie. And after watching the first movie, I could see where they had drawn the inspiration for so much out of the TV series for that movie. And you can even find where they got the idea for like the Spakuhura relationship out mm-hmm. of the TV show. And I just kept seeing more in this movie developing what came out of the first one. What what I liked was there were times where the dialogue was, particularly with Kirk, something that I could very much imagine original Kirk having said. You know, you think the rules don't apply to you. Maybe they shouldn't. Yes. You know, some of those things that, particularly movie-era Kirk, where he was older a little bit more ornery or whatever than than the tv series kirk which is funny because this is the tv series aged kirk if actually a little younger um it's it's fun how they're staying true to the characters yet making them their own both in terms of how the actors are doing it how they're writing it spock uhura and kirk 
and uh, bones. They've got those characters. They're unique. If I closed my eyes and I hear those lines of dialogue, I know which character that is, and I can feel the moment. Chekhov and Sulu, they're still finding their feet with them. Yeah. Especially because Chekhov got thrown down to engineering because they needed to take Scotty elsewhere. But both Chekhov and Sulu and, and Scotty, to a lesser degree, haven't gotten quite the screen time, mainly Chekhov and Sulu, uh, to, to really be as fully developed. But there are aspects of them that are very evocative of the original versions of the characters. Yes. Yet their own. Yes. What I find interesting is Scotty's gotten a lot of good screen time, less so in this one, more so in the first. He's gotten great character development. When he's used, he's yes. used memorably. And before, originally I would say the, not I would say, but I think the general consensus would be the three main characters, Kirk, Spock, McCoy. In this, I think it's much more of a toss-up between McCoy and Uhura. Because they did some great stuff. And great, they've granted they've got a great actress for the, for the role. Very true. Um, and great. I mean, they've got great actors all the way around on this. I don't think anywhere they really kind of skimped or had bad people. Um, but it's it's fun how it's much more action oriented um, and uh, intense in many respects. And just they've it's got a bigger canvas almost. I mean, we haven't seen as many worlds or all that stuff yet, but. Every time I look at that unbelievably huge engineering section... I'm amazed how much they can fit inside that ship. Well, in fairness, I think the limitation of the original stuff was just the screen, you know, uh, budget and stuff for a TV show. Because if you think about it, the ship was huge. It's just you really couldn't have a warp core that's in this one little area. Well, it reminds me in a lot of ways of a current cruise ship. I mean, if you look at the outside of a cruise ship and then go on board and see their big atriums with the ten decks that are opened up to this one area, you literally had an atrium on board yeah. the Enterprise that we went through at one point. You're right. I hadn't even thought about that aspect. You're right. And They'd had that central core that's just... Wow, it's huge above and below. And what really annoyed me at one of the points we were in there is I could have sworn we had just been told gravity was going out. Well, gravity was rotating around. I would have actually said, shut off the damn gravity. It'll get us around faster. And people will stop falling and getting injured and dying. Agreed, agreed. That was one of the moments that I was I was a little surprised. But they also had some fun stuff where they're running down the corridor, and it's like that one, um, the ice tunnel in, in uh, the Six Million Dollar Man stuff, granted that's a dated reference. They're running down the corridor, gravity shifts, they're running down the wall of the corridor, having to jump over the intersection and stuff. It's fun. Ew. Oh, there were some brilliantly, wonderfully laugh-out-loud moments, and the entire crowd we were in a full theater and everyone was laughing out loud and people were enjoying it so much they were trying to smother their laughter because they were embarrassed how much they were laughing at the fun moments yeah and that's fun to be a part of well and again that's something where i think they've breathed life and vitality into star trek as much as i love the original uh, cast movies the next gen movies and stuff there was a certain uh, cerebralness or, or stiffness, frankly, to some of those, almost a highbrow thing, whereas this is much more relaxed, let's have some fun with it, and not make fun of it. Well, and this had audience members that we were there with, I mean, every generation, I think, was represented. I saw people in their 60s, I saw preteens, and yet there were little lines of dialogue like, we're going to take the ship from the mud incident. Mm. Now, I'm pretty sure that's a reference to one of the original episodes. It's funny you mention that because I'm reading the Star Trek comics, and the writers and producers are very uh, involved in that, and they had the mud incident, and it was a female mud, not... Oh. Uh, if I'm recalling correctly, I'm pretty sure I am. And it's one of those, it's like, okay, this isn't Harry mud, but it is a mud. Um, and I'm, I would have to double check if the ship looks the same. I'm willing to bet it does. Because they did a couple of things in the comic, um, like they did the, uh, the Tribble episode. And it starts with Scotty's office and desk on the planet he was essentially, you know, marooned mm. out on. 
Um, and if you go back to that movie and you go to that scene, sure enough, there's a triple in a cage. You know, so and it would also explain how McCoy has a dead triple uh, with the the comic stuff. So I really like how they are interweaving what they're doing in the comics, what they're doing in the movie. There's a game coming out, and the comics are about to jump past the movie and the game to kind of pick up after after that. Um, and they also did a prequel four-issue miniseries in the comic, both before the original movie. And in that, remember the fireside scene with mm. Spock saying, this old Spock, how I got here? Yes. That was all the four-issue miniseries. I, I love the use of old Spock. I think not just that Leonard Nimoy pulls off what he's given beautifully and brilliantly, but I really love the Zen attitude that they've given that Spock. And again, this is a spoiler, but I was very pleasantly surprised to see him in this film. He does not have huge presence there, but it's memorable, it's fun, it is good to see, and it really just juxtaposes the two Spocks. Yes. And shows that there is some interaction between them that is not help me get out of this mess, but, you know, I, I would like to see, in the comic I think would be the best place to do this, a series of correspondence between the two. Mm. Yes. Where Old Spock could be mentoring without divulging his history... And just how is, how is your history unfolding? Oh, fascinating kind of a thing. There's, there's well, fun stuff they could do. There was very clearly a mentoring going on in the scene we had where the Spocks were conversing and an implication that there's some ongoing mentoring. And going back to the first of these two movies where at the end, young Spock basically asks old Spock, you know, why didn't you warn me? Why didn't you? And his response is along the lines of, I couldn't deprive you of the friendship with Kirk. But what I loved about this is there were a couple of places where, I wasn't thinking it, but I've got to imagine somebody in the theater or other theaters were thinking, well, gosh, you know, why doesn't he ask old Spock if he ever encountered Kirk or Khan mm. or whatever? He does. Yes. Yet, then the question would be, but didn't Spock say, I don't want to tell you how to live your life? And they address that. There's a certain questions come up, the writers anticipated it, and deal with them deftly. Yes. And again, the whole bit with the, the Tribble and the blood was the only part I felt was a little forced, given what happened later. But what happened later was such a nice, you know, homage, yet new take yeah. on the Wrath of Khan movie and stuff. That there's, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm cool with all this. There's a line that's hard, a tightrope, if you will, between forced and foreshadowing. And if they hadn't done the bit with the Tribble, there would have been no foreshadowing and people would have said it came out of nowhere. So they, they were in an awkward place and that's the reason I can say, okay, I'm cool with the Tribble. Though at the moment they were doing the Tribble, I'm like, why are you putting the blood into an admittedly dead Tribble? Not even an ailing Tribble. Yeah. And a Tribble of all things. Well, and to me, the Tribble aspect itself was, was fun. Um, just the, the whole Easter egg part of it almost. Yes. You know, it's like we're, we're acknowledging our history, even though some of it may have been a little hokey at the time. Well, and that, like I said, that's what I loved about this movie. There was just so many, if you were aware of it, nods to the fans who have been with the franchises and the show for so long. There was a Section 31 nod I loved for that. Deep Space Nine people. Yeah. Well, and the other thing at first was John uh, Harrison was his name? I think so. I was... Try to remember the captain from Generation. Hmm. Uh, and I thought it was John Harriman. Yes. So I think it was a different name. But again, the Section 31 reference, uh, there were one or two other things here and there. There was a ship called the Bradbury. Yeah. You know, just lots of little things that they do for the fans that respect sci-fi in general, the show's history, and it's... There well, was so much thought in this. This is how And to I didn't do, expect that. Yeah. Well, this is how to do a reboot, reboot right. Because you're respectful of the original material. You are acknowledging fans 
liked it, invested themselves in terms of time, money, emotion, and you know you're you're trying to update it, revise it, but not make people feel like they wasted their time with the old stuff. Well, and this is a fan base that already acknowledges and embraces the mirror universe. Mm-hmm. So we know there were other possibilities, that things didn't have to go the way we saw them go. So this is a franchise where a reboot was probably not just viable, but most likely to be accepted if you kept a few certain things. You know, James T. Kirk is still a man. Yeah. But what's interesting is, along those lines, if they really wanted to do the next movie and have Picard, Sisko, uh, you know, any of the other characters from later on, time travel in it, it's like, wow, history is really different. And think about it, that could be a fascinating movie. Yes. Because you could take a couple of the almost the lesser rung characters, you know, have Geordi be a captain, have, you know, O'Brien, have some of the more tech type or whatever, maybe, you know, even Riker some more, you know, military-ish or whatever, have them come back and it's like, this history is wrong. We must fix it. And Kirk and company saying, mm, maybe it's different, but it's sure as hell not wrong from our perspective. Now, I wanted to, something about that reminded me, I just want to say the Bob Bullock Museum had probably one of the funniest moments I've had in a movie theater in a while when they did their, please turn off your cell phones. And they popped up a slide with an image of a communicator and a tricorder. Yeah. Well, what's funny is it, it was classic Trek ones. Yes. Because the new Trek communicators are similar, but look just a little different. I nitpick, but it was it was fun to acknowledge, hey, you know, we're, we're doing Trek. I About mean, they, the only thing they didn't do was saying talking during the movie would be a violation of the Prime Directive. Yes. They had the spirit of the audience in mind, and they were all with it. And it was just, again, a lot of fun. Yeah, no, this was a, a, a good place to go see the film. I like seeing films there. It's a little bit of a hassle because you've got the additional cost of parking, and, you know, the IMAX is, uh, was it 12 bucks this time it's around? 12 bucks this time, but I will give them credit because I noticed it was only a dollar more than when we went three years ago for the other Star Trek. Yeah. And inflation being what it is, I was happy. But, I mean, that's part of why we tend to watch a lot of stuff on DVD, though is 12 bucks, two people, it's $24. I'm not even going to count the $8 parking because we happen to have a free thing for that this time. But that would have put it up to, uh, what, 32. 32? I mean, that's easily two DVDs. Yeah. You know, plus with the DVD, we've got a little bit more convenient place to, to watch it and stuff. And there could have been a couple of places where we could have said, oh, let's stop, go back, or, or what have you. Um, and as luck would have it, today was a rainy day, which is a pro and a con. We had to go out in the rain to see the movie we wanted to see, but on the other hand, I think a lot of people would have gone out to see the movie if it had been a sunny day. It was so, still a pretty crowded theater. It was a very crowded theater. I wonder if we could have gotten tickets if it had been a sunny day. Yeah, but that's also why I don't rush out to go see films the minute they open. I know there are people out there that love doing that, and that's cool. I mean, I'm a big film fan. I mean, I've probably got a thousand DVDs here. Um, but I'm not a big fan of fighting the crowds, trying to get decent seats, and all that kind of thing. And I thought we had really good seats. Again, I always feel like I'm too far into the film sometimes with an IMAX. But it was a wonderfully immersive experience. I really liked the uh, epic size and scope of what they're able to do on film these days. I thought they used the 3D beautifully. It, I mean, for a gimmick, I didn't think they overused it. There weren't any places where the 3D effect felt wrong and kind of threw me out of it. It never felt forced, but I could also see where people would feel it's not integral. In other words, yes. I think if you were to see it without 3D, you're missing something, yeah. but not something unbelievably important. It doesn't ruin the film without it. And that's a nice balance. Exactly. You know, back in the 80s when we would go to Disneyland and see some of the really early 3D things, and they had the little animal that flew out and acted like it perched on the shoulder in front of you, there was a moment that reminded me of that because when they had the people chasing 
everyone through the forest and they were throwing the spears and firing arrows and they turn and one comes towards you and all I could think was since there was a volcano about to erupt in the background the next thing they're going to add to the IMAX theater is smell effects yeah and it's going to smell like the theater's on fire and this will be a complete experience I, I would worry about them going for the all immersive experience and and having the, the sprinklers come on because it's raining in the film. You know, they, fog bank or some such. They had the sound system up so loud during one of the major fighter sequences that the room seemed to tremble with the motion. And I just found myself kind of chuckling because I know they didn't mean it as a tension break, but it felt almost like Star Tours where you're kind of yeah. thrown into the motion. Well, and that was one of the other things with the 3D here is there have been a couple of times where they will do a first-person perspective as you're flying through something or whatever, and it's almost nauseating. Yes. I didn't have any of that here. Mm -mm. Um, there was a couple of places uh, when Kirk and Khan were, were going from ship to ship that I thought, again, the 3D was, was enhancing the experience, not integral and not overly gratuitous. Well, and that was where it really felt to me that it paid off, that that was a side view of watching them fly instead of being the first person aiming at the debris. Yes, yes. Overall, I thought they did a, a very good job on this film just all the way around. The writing flowed. I thought they started it off with a good action sequence that wasn't just a throwaway thing, but really was both separate from yet integral to the film and motivated aspects of it. Um the the acting and the cast uh, all in all very well done i even liked a couple of the people who were in some minor parts yes at the beginning it was so distracting because we see the one guy uh who gets encountered by khan with a hey i need you to do this before we know who khan is and i'm thinking the guy he's talking to at first i thought it was christopher judge because we had a, a too close and it's like no it's not him it's not him when he was getting out of bed or whatever but then it's like i know that actor uh, and then when we saw the credits and it was Noel Clark, it's like, aha, that guy played Mickey, who was the then boyfriend of of uh, Rose, the first companion for the reboot Doctor Who. Rose gets out of the, the picture. They, they can't be together for various reasons. Um, and he winds up with uh, Martha Jones, who was the, I guess, third companion. Was she? No, maybe she. I forget if, if it was rose and then martha and then donna or donna and then martha anyways it's been long enough but it was fun to see a a, a recurring character from doctor who in the star trek universe because we've seen one or two kind of go the other way uh, on rare occasion not often but you know they they did a good job kind of casting and stuff the effects were very well done i like the new transporter effect the only time it didn't really work for me was when uh, carol was getting beamed off the ship and at first, it, she was moving, she was still having the swirly stuff around her, and I was thinking, is she just getting... Obliterated? Ob yeah, obliterated or whatever. And I think it may have also been the lighting on the bridge where it was kind of interfering into the effect. Um, but I thought she was well cast, too. And again, they did a nice job parallel, uh, paralleling kind of the, the Wrath of Khan without duplicating the Wrath of Khan, and... I think if you watch one and then the other really in either order, yeah, you, you you it adds a layer to them without subtracting from either. I mean they've they've really done a good job, and this was one that you know I'm a big Star Trek fan, but at first you know it wasn't something that I felt I just have to see it in the theater. It's like it's there, it's on IMAX. Okay, let's go see it. And I'm very glad I did. Uh, fun film. If it hadn't been on the IMAX, I probably would not have gone to see it in the theater. It was only the fact it was IMAX, and it had those extra inches, and I have a feeling it would have the space battles. Now, by extra inches, you mean like the extra 30 or 40 feet? Yeah. <laughs> okay, just to be clear. <laughs> the extra two stories of the screen that justifies their claim to have the largest screen in Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas, apparently. Yes. Well, and again, part of it for me is I've got the projection system here at the house, so I've got a very movie-like experience here. Is it the same as being in a movie with the THX sound and all that? No, but not that bad. I've got more comfortable chairs, I think. 
Definitely. You know, I've got whatever snacks I want to provide and as much soda as I need and can stop and start, you know. And again, just the cost factor. But the the IMAX certainly makes it a lot more uh, uh, appealing to go to it and stuff. And they fixed the biggest problem I think we had with the first one. You know exactly where I'm going with this. So a couple of years back, we're going to see uh, the first of the Star Trek reboots. We get in there, and, and we were a little bit further up that time, I guess. They do the here's the 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 rolling credits or not the credits the uh, the previews the trailers the and whatever. slides just the slides, the slides that's what it was. that say here's what else is going on in the museum please take your seat please don't leave trash behind so they're doing all that on an IMAX screen biggest screen in Texas and I think they were projecting it at the same size I would have projected on my wall maybe a bit bigger I mean. It looked like a postage stamp sized thing from where we were seeing. I felt like I needed binoculars to see it. And we had paid like $4 more per ticket to see this than if we'd gone to just the theater down the street from the house, as well as parking. And So we're seeing all this and we're thinking, surely this isn't going to be how the movie is. And of course, the movie wasn't that way, but this time at least all the preview stuff was blown up to big size, heavily pixelated in places, but at least using more of the screen, which was kind of funny. So this is something that, uh, if you're a Star Trek fan, I, I really recommend it. If you haven't seen the reboots, and we're not much of a Star Trek fan, but for some reason listening to this, uh, but want something a bit more action-oriented, a little lighter-hearted, but not a parody of it, check out the rebooted stuff. They've done a great job with it. Um, well, and that's the thing. I wasn't a fan of the original series until I saw the reboot three years ago. Yeah. So I think that says something pretty impressive for the reboot and just what they did for Kirk. And really, I think Spock and Uhura, this relationship for them, you can see the foundation of it back in the series. And it's just a beautiful relationship here because it has a twist on what was there. Well, and it fundamentally changes aspects of Spock's character without violating them, because he now has a very clear emotional side. And there were aspects, uh, there was a great scene in the, the Mud ship or whatever, where they reference the events of the first movie when Vulcan gets blown up, and the relationship between Spock and Uhura in a very good way. Yes. And... You know, they did a few other things in the film that deepened his character quite a bit. These characters are definitely growing and moving forward and on a progression, which there were times with the original set of movies, I kind of wondered. Those characters kind of always seemed to be... He's still captain of the ship. Even if he's admiral, he's still captain of the ship. He's still the same basic person. But they played around even with that in this film. When Kirk had gotten busted down to first officer under... Um, Pike. And Spock keeps referring to him as captain. You know, they keep doing that dynamic. And it's it's funny because it, it, it echoes the they fall into their comfortable roles aspect. It also almost foreshadows Admiral Kirk getting busted down and just how this is such a core part of Kirk's being. Of the rules are there, he acknowledges them, they need to be there, but maybe they don't always apply to him. You know, it's... Yeah, he's always going to be a rule breaker, but he's always going to break rules for the benefit of others. He always does stuff for the right reason, and... Sometimes because of who he is, sometimes almost despite of who he is. And sometimes because of being nudged in the right direction by Spock, McCoy, or some of the others. Um, I'm really looking forward to where they go, both in the comics and stuff, uh, and certainly with the, the next movies. I mean, my only disappointment with the whole reboot is it almost, not almost, I think it very much prevents a weekly TV series for Star Trek. And I would love to be seeing what we're getting here on just that frequent of a basis. On the one hand, I agree. But on the other hand, we just ended with to boldly go for five years. And I suspect in the comics we're going to get some of those five-year voyages. I, to a degree, I think we've already gotten some of them. But 
because they've got movie actors, movie budget, movie material, I think Paramount has taken that franchise from TV to movie, much like they did with Mission Impossible. And here I think they made a much better transition and a much better execution of it. Yes. Because they took an ensemble with Mission Impossible and almost a solo lead feature with Mission Impossible. Um, But I think it's one of their properties that could work very well, obviously it's had for many, many, many uh, 20-some-odd seasons on TV. Um, And it's going to be interesting moving forward because the other main franchise in space is, of course, Star Wars. They've announced five films... They're going to do the, uh, the, the the final trilogy, but between those, that'll be the first, third, and fifth films, they're going to do two standalone films. I think one's going to be Boba Fett, and I'm mm. not sure. Mm. I don't remember if they announced what the other one was going to be. But in addition to those five films, I think they're also starting up another, um, I guess it's an animated TV series to, I guess, replace Clone Wars or whatever. Yeah. So they've managed to have kind of the best of both worlds movie and TV. You look at what Marvel's doing with the Avengers movies, now we're going to have a S.H.I.E.L.D. TV series, which I'm very much looking forward to. Well, and that may be the question. Do they have some characters, or in the next Star Trek, could they give us some characters like the characters from Avengers that have spun out the S.H.I.E.L.D. series? Could they could they keep going with Star Trek in, t- in movie form and a Starfleet TV series of some sort? Because quite frankly, I do believe that Sulu and possibly Chekhov, that we didn't really see enough of him in this movie to give a firm opinion on that. But the Sulu we saw in this movie, he could helm a TV show. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see George Takai as his sensei. That would be interesting. The other thing is bring in some of the secondary characters from the films and the TV show, Decker and a few of those, that you could then spin out into if they wanted to do a TV series. Mm-hmm. This um, this Sulu had the grace and the poise. He was very well used. Um, again, he and Chekhov tend to get the short end of the scripts. You've got so many characters plus a, a big bad to go fight or what have you. Um, but... He was well used, and the actor did a great job. He did. Um, I was I was very pleased with that aspect. So I mean, to me, this is a, a film definitely well worth seeing. Um, the comic series, I think, is an excellent complement to it. I think IDW is doing a great job with it. I didn't think the Countdown to Darkness really played into uh, the movie uh, remotely as well as the first Countdown played into that because I thought it was really. Here is the prequel that Spock's telling us what happened. I didn't get that kind of tie-in sense, but maybe I just need to reread those comics. But they're a lot of fun. They're doing a great job with it. I don't think they're getting to near wide enough of an audience, given how many Star Trek fans there are out there. Um, but definitely uh, glad I saw it. Well worth doing. Well, and I think anything that adds understanding or anything that helps you catch those little inside jokes and those little nods in the movie it's worth picking up and checking out because it's so much fun to catch what the writers put in there for you well it has me wondering if on the dvd for uh, into darkness if we're going to get a commentary track both from like chris pine and uh, zachary quinto which could be a lot of fun and also from the writing team of, yeah, we referenced this, oh, we were thinking about going this way, we went this way instead. I mean, that would be something I'd very much uh, like to to watch and listen to. Yeah. So, anything else to to say on this? No. All right. Obviously, you know, we're talking about movies and stuff like that. Um, We watch uh, a couple of TV shows as well, so if there's interest, we might start talking about some of those. Those include Arrow. I think we're definitely going to watch the S.H.I.E.L.D. show when that starts up. Well, and one of the things I'll mention about Arrow is because we watch it together, I don't read the comics, but I'm forever asking, is this character in the comics? Is this in any way inspired or drawn from the comics? Because I like a lot of what they're doing in that TV show, and I'm wondering what is coming from the source material and where are they diverging and coming up with their own new tangent 
And is some of that going back into the comics or not? Because I think they're doing some really fun stuff there. And if it's not in the comics, I hope it is. And if it's coming from the comics, that's far better material than people realize. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's also, from my perspective, when we have those discussions, interesting. Because I'm like, yeah, yeah, that comes from the comic. And you're like, well, explain. Sometimes I can do so very well. Others, it's like, Argus, it stands for, you know, and I... Because it wasn't that memorable in the comic or it was a hard fit or whatever. But I like when they have those kinds of Easter eggs. So, you know, there are a lot of kind of comic book related TV shows and movies. If there's interest, we may start doing some more episodes on that. Maybe not. Part of it will depend on time. Again, certain uh, uh, constraints and limitations on my schedule have changed, which made uh, going and seeing the film today possible. Uh, and certainly... Um, you know, kind of the uh, de facto, I don't want to say ban on, on talking about movies and stuff has kind of been lifted. But there was a, a, essentially a, an edict, I guess, would be a, all well, comics all the time. And certainly this is a comic book related podcast. No question about that. It's going to stay that way. But there's also comic related stuff in movies and on TV that I'd like to be talking about. Well, and I started going to the San Diego Comic-Con in 1991, and the only reason John persuaded me to go that year is because there was a panel that was going to have writers from Star Trek The Next Generation. Well, I can't tell you how many times I would go to Comic-Con back when it was still at the Civic Center, and in the movie theater there or whatever, they would have... um, uh, Okuda, um, mm. Michael Okuda, and he would just be going through a slideshow. Of, yeah, this is the the set we put together. Here's here's a close up on the 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 diagram of the ship. Here's this, and it was very much behind the scenes, and it was fun. And it really shows just how much of a crossover there is between science fiction movies, television, and comics. You know, in addition to the writing team from the movie doing the comics, I mean, there's just so much back and forth. And to to kind of put blinders on and say, well, I don't want to talk about this because it's, it's not strictly comics. Or I don't want to talk about this comic because it's an adaptation and I just want to deal with the movie, the source material. Or I don't want to deal with the show Arrow because it's not the source material of the comic or whatever. I mean, different things work different ways in different mediums. And... To me, it's it's all good. I, I like all this stuff. It can be fascinating seeing what came from the source material, what didn't. And sometimes the interpretation or the limitations even, they're placed on a, a story because you can do things in a book that you can't do in a movie or vice versa. Well, a good example of that is Arrow. Obviously, based on the comic, they made some changes to make it play as a, a TV show. Based on the success of the TV show, they're trying to fold some of that back into the comic. The hood, the the, the silhouette, the dark aspects, the, the, the cinematography aspects, which, while it works wonderfully on TV, feels a little forced the way they tried to do it in the comic so far. Not to say it can't work there, but it's fun to see how the stuff feeds on itself and how the properties grow or almost fight against each other. Um, so, you know, it's... It's something that, that, that I really enjoy. I watch a ton of television and stuff in addition to reading a ton of comics. I may not watch the stuff the instant it hits the airwaves or the movie screen or whatever, because um, I'm trying to keep up on the comics, too. But again, that's part of why I like going to Comic-Con, is I get movies, TV, comics, the whole nine yards. Well, so. and the flip side for me is sometimes I will deliberately let a TV show build up six episodes that I've recorded. Because there are some shows where they are weaving these threads together in the plot. And you may catch a lot of it if you're watching it as it airs week after week. But if you sit down and you watch those six episodes yes. back to back to back to back to back and you see it all just unfold in a row, you're just amazed at the tapestry they wove for you. Well, it's funny because with comics, a lot of people will hold off and either collect the multiple issues or literally wait for the trade for that same purpose to get more of the story at once mm -hmm. and we've done that a couple of times on tv shows because we get together you know wednesday friday nights and stuff um and i forget if it was scandal or what show it was where we watched one episode immediately watched the next it's got the previously on recapping a scene that we saw just moments prior and the recap was, was different, different. 
different. Just just enough to put a slightly different spin or whatever. It's like, come on, guys, that's cheating. They changed the dialogue. They changed how they cut it together. And it played differently. And lines were interpreted differently. And it came across with a whole different feeling. And if you hadn't seen it 30 seconds earlier, you weren't as aware. But if you've had a full week to dull your senses. Well, it's it's taking the comic book concept of retconning and applying it in a very real and manipulative manner, and not ma- uh, maliciously so, because they're, they're trying to recap a full episode and a couple of scenes, so sometimes you need to tweak the scenes you show to get the same effect. And I get that, but it's, it's interesting. There has got to be a fine art, or if there isn't, there should be a course on teaching the fine art of filming or editing previously on segments for TV shows. Because sometimes they will assemble those with lines of dialogue put together out of order. And it totally changes a conversation. Well, it's interesting because Drew and I were talking this week on the Weekly Comic Spotlight about the previously on page because um we didn't have that for the nightwing issue we read and it's like oh yeah he's in chicago now and it was some of it took a little harder to get back into the story whereas uh we read wolverine and the x-men number 29 drew hadn't been reading the series but because of the previously on he had that that entry ramp and it kind of takes the place of the opening credits of a tv show which will, back when they had full opening credits, recap the premise, give you who the actors are, who the characters are, give you the tone, the style, the mood. Um, whereas if the story just starts... There were some shows, I mean, Doogie Hauser comes to mind, where if you watched the opening credits, it told you everything you needed to know to know the premise of the show. I think a lot of sci-fi shows tend to do that. I would expect S.H.I.E.L.D. to try to do it, in terms of what does S.H.I.E.L.D. stand for, what's it mean, what's the premise, who are the characters, why do you need to watch? Because a lot of sci-fi shows in particular, if you don't get it, the show makes no sense, you're perplexed, you hate it. Awake, I think that was one of its problems. Yes. While they did kind of repitch the thing every time, if you don't do that, if you don't get it, it doesn't fly. Anyways, we saw the film. We thought it'd be fun to have a discussion, record the discussion, put it up as an episode. Um, Let me know what you think. Post on the forum. Um, You want to hear more stuff like this, uh, be it either on, you know, films coming out or, you know, past DVDs and stuff like that. Uh, TV shows uh, you think might be worth getting a periodic, you know, what do we think about sort of a deal. We'll certainly consider that. Anything else? Does that pretty much do it? That does it. Cool. The show notes and forum for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.